0: been working our way for almost nine months now let's pray lord we're thankful for all the truth we've heard this morning it's amazing your word just never fails to astonish me and i trust that it's the same for your people here this morning absolutely astonishing what you've done for us who you are how gracious you are to us We look forward to that day in which we feast in the house of Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, with our King, reigning forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that time in which we will weep no more. For many of us are weeping even now in our hearts because of struggles and difficulties and just the reality of living in a fallen world. It's hard. There's suffering around every corner. But Lord, we know we will weep no more one day. You will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will feast with You. And oh, we long for that day and we're thankful that the Lord's Day becomes for us a preview of heaven. That we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ and we get to experience a foretaste of that this morning. And we're thankful for that. We pray for Your people that we would grow in grace. That You would continue to make us like Christ. That You would give us help to subject ourselves to the governing authorities when we can But give us boldness to obey our God rather than men when that situation comes. Help us to love our neighbor, to fulfill the law, to put on Christ, to make no provision for the flesh, that we might emulate emulate our Savior for your glory. Be with us now, Lord. Give us understanding. For your glory, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Colossians 4 again this morning. Colossians chapter 4. And as you know, we have come to the last section of this epistle after about nine months. And that is verses 7 to 18, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Remember, Colossians can be broken into three sections. There's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. We've now come to the end here, to the conclusion, Paul's conclusion. And we began to look at this passage last week. We got from verses 7 to verse 9. This morning we'll consider verses 10 to 14, and next week we'll finish up our study of Colossians by looking at verses 15 through 18. So with that said, let me read the text to you once again. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. This is what the Word of God says to us this morning. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha in the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed of the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now it's very obvious from this passage as we just give it a quick read that it's Paul's conclusion. We have final greetings, we have some closing instructions, we have some final words of benediction. This is Paul's Conclusion, this is the closing of the letter. And I told you last week, this is the kind of passage of Scripture that people are most likely to just skip over. At the very best, they kind of skim through it, and at the very worst, they just don't bother to read it at all. I mean, after all, what is there to learn from a bunch of antiquated names? What can we really learn from some closing greetings? Surely there's not much to learn, right? Well, the answer is much. There's much for us to learn from this wonderful little passage, this lengthy conclusion. In fact, the first thing we learn is that Paul was a man with many friends, right? Paul was a man with many friends. We learn that even the great apostle Paul couldn't do it alone. Even Paul needed help. And as is often the case in the conclusions to his epistles, he uses that occasion to mention the names of several of his fellow workers for the kingdom of God, his friends who came alongside of him and aided him in the work of the ministry. Paul needed help. The great Apostle Paul, the one we talk about all the time, the one who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, the one who in a large part was responsible for spreading the Gospel throughout the Roman world. Paul couldn't do it alone. And neither can we. We can't do it alone. We need help. We all need ministerial companions, friends to come alongside of us and help us walk the Christian life and engage in faithful, fruitful ministry. We cannot do that alone. So we all need ministerial companions. But what are the kind of friends we're looking for? What makes a companion a faithful companion? How do we know if we're faithful friends and have faithful Christian companions? Well, as we work our way through this passage and we see Paul's companions, we learn what both faithful and unfaithful companions look like. And that's helpful for us. Because if you want to be a faithful ministerial associate of other believers, and if you want to pick the right people for yourself, you need to know what a faithful companion looks like and so as we work our way through this text we'll see that three things we're going to notice in the text three things paul's ministerial companions paul's final exhortations and paul's closing words his ministerial companions his final exhortations and his closing words as you saw last week this is going to be more like a bible study this morning it's going to be like a character study and as we work our way through these verses there's going to be many practical principles for us to apply to our lives So with that said, let's consider, first of all, Paul's ministerial companions. Paul's ministerial companions. We began to do that last week. We'll finish that up this week. In verses 7 to 14, Paul mentions eight men, eight men who came alongside of him and served him in the ministry. MacArthur calls them the unsung heroes of the New Testament. Ordinary men, men we would not even know about had it not been for Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit mentioning their names in some of his letters. Ordinary people just like you and me. And this list could be broken into two categories. Category one, those who were sending the letter. Category two, those who were sending greetings. Those who were sending the letter, here's who were sending greetings. Last week we looked at the first two, those who were sending the letter. In verses seven and eight, we saw Tychicus, Paul's first companion. Tychicus. We learned that Tychicus was probably one of Paul's converts from Asia Minor. He was converted during Paul's three year ministry in Ephesus, perhaps. He joined Paul's missionary team. He delivered three of Paul's epistles, at least Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And we also learned that he was a man that was chosen by Paul to relieve both Timothy and Titus of their respected pastoral duties, so that Paul could come, or Timothy and Titus could come to Paul. So, in a word, we learned that Tychicus was a man who was faithful, a man who was trustworthy, and we should seek to be like Tychicus. We should seek to be faithful. But then the second ministerial companion we saw last week was Onesimus. Onesimus, verse 9. Who was Onesimus? He was a runaway slave from Colossae. Philemon was his slave owner. He had rebelled, run away to Rome, was converted through Paul's ministry there, and was now making his way back with Tychicus and the letter of Colossians to his master. It's amazing. He was a man transformed by the gospel. His heart, his life, even his relationships were radically transformed by the gospel. Onesimus was a man transformed. He wasn't to be received as a slave, but as a beloved brother. That's the amazing power of the Gospel. So those were the two men charged with delivering the letter. But now this morning we're going to finish looking at the second category, those who were sending greetings. Those who were sending greetings. Six more men mentioned here. There's much to learn from them. Antiquated names it seems, but men with much to teach us. So first let's consider... Aristarchus, Aristarchus. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Now that name Aristarchus means best leader or best ruler. That was a very fitting name for a man who must have been a very good leader if he's mentioned among the Pauline associates. This man must have been a good leader. But who is this man? Who is Aristarchus? Apart from some old name that it's hard to even pronounce... We see him in five places in the New Testament, Colossians and in four others. And to kind of give you a complete character study of this man, let me start by reading the other passages to you. The first place we encounter Aristarchus is in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. And there we read this. The city was filled with the confusion, that is the city of Ephesus. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, there he is, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So there we learn that Aristarchus was a companion of Paul and he was from Macedonia, ministering with him there in Ephesus. And then we see him in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. I read that verse to you last week because Tychicus was also mentioned there. Let me read it to you again. And he, that is Paul, was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrus, and by Aristarchus, there he is, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. So Aristarchus was one of Paul's traveling companions, and he was was from Thessalonica. And then in Acts chapter 27, we read of him again, starting in verse 1. There we read this. When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramadian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So, that's who Aristarchus is. He's from Thessalonica, from Macedonia, and he even traveled with Paul to Rome, which means that he was even a part of that great shipwreck we read about in the end of the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts. So surely this was a very faithful companion of Paul's. He was willing to suffer with him, travel with him, and even be shipwrecked with the apostle Paul. But then we read, him, read about him in one more place. Philemon, verse 24. There, starting in verse 23, we read this. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So that's who Aristarchus is. He's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. And now back to Colossians 4 here, verse 10. We learn a little bit more about this man by reading our text. Verse 10, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Aristarchus was Paul's fellow prisoner. Fellow prisoner, what does that mean? Well, it's possible that he had been arrested himself in Rome for preaching the gospel. But more than likely it means this. Aristarchus was a prisoner in the sense that he shared in Paul's ministry. He shared in Paul's imprisonment by staying with Paul and ministering to him. I mean, think about it. Aristarchus is a free man. He could go anywhere he wants. But instead he chooses to identify with Paul and suffer with him. So in a word, Aristarchus was a man who suffered for the gospel. A man... Who suffered for the gospel. And so it must be for us. All believers are called to suffer for the gospel, to be bold for our Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul encouraged his young protege, saying, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And then he went on to add in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That is what God called Timothy to do, and He calls us to do, to suffer for the gospel. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's just a common truism, an inevitable reality. To follow Christ in a fallen world that hates Him is to be hated with Him. To follow a hated Savior is to be persecuted alongside of Him. If you want to live for Christ, friends, you've got to be willing to die for Christ. That's what he says, right? You've got to be willing to die for Christ. That's why he said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That's what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. If you want to be a faithful and genuine Christian, it's going to cost you your life. Enough of this silly evangelical Christianity where we just go to church and pray prayers and say we're Christians. But we don't really love Christ or the Gospel. Those who are really in Christ will be persecuted. Perhaps if you're not being persecuted, it's because you're not living godly in Christ. That seems like the logical conclusion. And perhaps now more than ever in our culture we're experiencing that. You know, in other countries we know we have brothers and sisters being beheaded and thrown off buildings by radical Muslims and so on. But even in our own country, we're starting to face intense persecution, perhaps like never before. Right? We all already heard about what's going on with MacArthur's church. Perhaps it's a matter of time before it gets much worse, before they come for Christ as King or other church, We've got to be willing to suffer for the gospel. And if we're not willing to suffer now, we're not going to be willing to suffer then. If we're not willing to be... Uh, hated for Jesus, if we're not willing to have cars drive by and tell us we're stupid for Jesus, what makes you think you're going to die for Jesus? I'm talking about biblical Christianity, suffering for the gospel. In Romans 1.15, Paul wrote, I am eager to preach the gospel. Now wait a minute, Paul. Aren't you in prison? Aren't you suffering? I mean, the gospel is a scandalous message. You seemingly have every reason to be ashamed of it, Paul. Why are you so eager? Here's why. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Paul was eager to preach the Gospel because he wasn't ashamed of it. What does that tell us? Perhaps the reason in our culture we're so not so eager to preach the Gospel is because we are ashamed of it. Because we are ashamed of it. So how could Paul be unashamed of this Gospel? He tells us. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's the power of God. Because it's the message that reveals God's righteousness. It shows me how to be right with God. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You've broken every law. By nature, you're a God-hating rebel deserving of judgment. And the Gospel says Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners. He satisfied divine justice and He gives you His righteousness by faith. That's a message to be unashamed of. It's the power of God for salvation. It brings with it the dynamite, omnipotent power of God to save. That's why. It's the message that God has saved us by. and The message by which He will save all of His people. A message that cannot fail, that cannot be thwarted. And therefore, we have no reason to be ashamed of the Gospel. And Aristarchus understood that. He was a man like Paul who understood that. That's why he was so willing to suffer for the Gospel. All of these men, in fact, were taking a big risk by associating themselves with Paul, a persecuted man. But They were willing to take that risk for the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, is that the way we live our lives? Are we willing to suffer for the Gospel? Or are you ashamed of the Gospel? When's the last time you told a non-believer about the Gospel? If you're not telling them about the Gospel, are you ashamed of it? Notice what Jesus says. He says, those who are ashamed of me and my words. No one's ashamed of the idea of Jesus in and of itself, but they're ashamed of His words. Brothers and sisters, let us like Aristarchus not be ashamed of the Gospel. May we suffer for the Gospel. He was a man who suffered. And this bold man of God was sending his greetings to the Colossians. But there's a second man mentioned here who was also sending greetings, and that is Mark. Mark, look at verse 10 again. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. Welcome him. So the second man here is Mark. Who in the world is that? Who's Mark? Who's Mark? His name is mentioned in three places in the New Testament. Three places. And we learn a lot about him by just reading this verse here. He's Mark, Barnabas' cousin Mark. Barnabas' cousin. Who is Barnabas? Barnabas was a guy who was very close to Paul in the book of Acts. Of course, Barnabas and Paul split, as we know, because of an altercation concerning Mark. And we learn a lot about Mark from the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12 for a minute. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Acts chronicles for us the spread of the gospel in the early church. And in doing so, it gives us some insight into several biblical characters, including Mark. So Acts chapter 12, and I want to read verse 12 to you. Acts 12, verse 12. And there we read this. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So here we learn that Mark had another name. He was John, also called Mark. John would have been his Hebrew name. Mark would have been his Roman name, his Gentile name. And he was the son of Mary. Then go down to verse 25. Acts 12, verse 25. We learn a little more about John Mark. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So John Mark closely associated with Barnabas and Paul, and he had gone on with them in their mission to deliver a financial contribution to the poor saints there in Jerusalem. He was a companion to Paul. Then go to chapter 13, Acts 13. And here in Acts 13 we have Paul and Barnabas being sent out by the church at Antioch on what we call the first missionary journey. And we read a little bit more about Mark. Go to verse 5. Acts 13, verse 5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So as Paul and Barnabas begin their first missionary journey, John Mark's there with them, at least at the beginning. But then in verse 13, that's when things start to go south. Acts chapter 13, or yeah, Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John Mark left them sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? Perhaps he was missing his family. Perhaps he was starting to become frightened over the fear of persecution. Whatever the case, John, Mark, left. We don't really know why at this point. But that's the last time we see Mark until we get to Acts 15. Now go to Acts chapter 15. Mark kind of falls off the scene for a few chapters. Then we get to Acts chapter 15. And the very end there. Acts fifteen, starting in verse thirty six. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. In other words, let's start a new a second missionary journey. Let's go follow up with the churches we planted. Verse thirty seven. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Mark had deserted them in Acts 13, and this agitated Paul so badly that it had produced a split between Paul and Barnabas. He took it very seriously. He was a man who liked people who were committed. And what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Now we end up with two missionary teams instead of one, so we can even see God working in the midst of problems. But in any case, that's the last time we see Mark in the book of Acts, The Acts narrative ends for Mark. And if it ended there, that seems like a bad ending for John Mark. But the good news is the story doesn't end there. We learn more about him from the epistles of Paul and Peter. So go back to Colossians 4 now. Colossians 4, <clears throat> verse 10. <clears throat> and notice this statement that Paul makes about Mark here. In light of the fact that Mark had had a fallen out with Paul, look what we read here. Verse 10. Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Wow. Something's changed between the relationship between Paul and Mark. At once, Mark was seemingly useless in the eyes of Paul. Now he says, if he comes, welcome him. I commend him to you. He's commendable. In Philemon 124, I read to you earlier, Mark is mentioned along Aristarchus as one of Paul's companions, one of his fellow laborers. So Mark goes from falling out to being a fellow worker with Paul. And then we read this amazing statement from Paul concerning Mark in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy four eleven. And remember, this is Paul's final epistle. He wrote this during his second Roman imprisonment, right before his death. And listen to what he writes in 2 Timothy four eleven. Pick up Mark. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Isn't that amazing? At one point, Mark has a falling out. He's useless to Paul so much so it splits a missionary team up. And at the very end of his life, who does Paul want with him? Mark. He's useful to me for service. How did that happen? He was a man restored. How did that happen? Well, of course, it would seem that his cousin Barnabas took him under his wing. He was a son of encouragement. He did that. And perhaps he had helped him in the restoration process. But there may have been another person who was involved in that process, and that's the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter. First Peter 5.13, we read this statement from Peter. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Wow. Mark the deserter is now Mark the son of Peter. He went from being useless to being useful to Paul, and Mark's spiritual son. Mark or Peter's spiritual son. Peter had become his mentor, his spiritual father in the faith. And it must be noted that according to church tradition, Mark is the one, John Mark, is the one who wrote the Gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Mark. This man goes from deserter to Gospel writer. He goes from being useless to being a dear companion to Paul and a son of Peter. It's amazing, isn't it? It's tremendous. He was a man restored. you know what we learn from Mark? You know what we learn? We learned that no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad you may have blown it, the Lord can still use you. Lord can Praise God for that, right? Let's face it, we all blow it. We all mess up. We all do silly, foolish things. But Mark's life is a testimony that the Lord can even use those who mess up. So you think you've blown it? You think you've gone too far? You're useless to the Lord? Repent. Serve the Lord right where you are and be amazed as He'll use you for His glory amazing. Thus was Mark, a man restored. Paul says, if he comes, welcome him. He's my companion, and he's useful to me for service. But there's a third man here. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. There's another man with two names, just to complicate things a little bit. Jesus, who is also Justice. Jesus. That's a man with a big name to live up to, isn't it? We know somebody named Jesus, don't we? Our Savior. It's the name of our Savior. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name means. It's a big name to live up to. And his other name, his surname, Justice, just means justice or righteousness. And it would seem that this man was living up well to the name because he was a faithful companion to Paul. If you're going to carry the name of the Savior, you better do it well. You better do it well. And you know, in a similar way, we all bear the name of the Savior, don't we? We're all Christians, followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, called to represent Him in the world, called to be like Him, to walk as He walked. That's what we should do. We should pursue Christ's likeness bear the name of our Savior well. Are we doing that? Brothers and sisters, are you becoming more and more like Christ or do you look just like the world? There's a problem. If your life is dominated by worldliness, Examine yourself. Or are you becoming like Christ? Paul goes on to say that these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. We don't know anything else about Jesus' justice. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture. All we know is that he was one of Paul's Jewish companions. And he, along with Aristarchus and Mark, were his only fellow workers for the kingdom of God from the circumcision. That's to say they were Jews. Jewish men who labored with Paul for the advancement of the kingdom. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter, those were the only Jewish companions he had with him in Rome. And then he adds at the very end of verse 11, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me, a comfort to me. Those are the kind of companions we want, right? Those are the, that's the kind of companion we want to be. We want people around us who encourage us, who speak the word to us, who comfort us, who build us up. And that's what we should be, a people who are encouraging one another we're going to make it in the Christian life we're going to make it in Christian ministry we need people alongside us laboring with us and encouraging us that's what faithful ministry companions do and that's what these three men were the apostle Paul a source of great encouragement but now there are three more men mentioned here that were sending greetings with Paul three more men they were all Gentiles and the next man doesn't really need much of an introduction we've talked about him before that's Epaphras Epaphras. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is one of your number, he says. In other words, like Onesimus in verse 9, Epaphras was also from Colossae. He was from Colossae. In fact, He was probably their church planting pastor, as we talked about before. Remember, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that it was Epaphras who they learned the gospel from. Not Paul. Paul had never been to Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 1, he's mentioned, the the Colossians are mentioned among those who had never seen Paul's face. So it wasn't Paul who brought the gospel to Colossae. It was his dear companion, his associate, Epaphras. Notice how Paul's ministry multiplied. Paul can't do it on his own. Paul can't plant every church in every vicinity, in every city, disciple every believer. He needed to reproduce himself in people, and that's what he did with Epaphras. So Epaphras was their church planting pastor. And we read of Epaphras in one other place in the New Testament, in Philemon. And there he's referred to as my fellow prisoner, my fellow prisoner. So like Aristarchus, Epaphras was voluntarily... At the time of the letter's writing, sharing in Paul's imprisonment. He had left Colossae, went to Rome to inform Paul of the heresy in Colossae, and was now still there sharing in his imprisonment. So Epaphras was one of their number. But he's also described in verse 12 as a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a bond slave. Same Greek word we saw last week, the word doulos, a slave, one who has no ownership rights of his own, who's under the authority of a master. like all these other men, knew that he was totally owned by another. That he was bought with a price, was no longer his own, and had to glorify God in his body. He was under divine mastery. His entire life yielded to Christ. And that's the way we should view ourselves, right? We're slaves of Jesus. Everything belongs to Him. Every area of your life is His. There's no secular, sacred divide. There's no, this is God's, this is mine. Give it all to God. Even... When you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you're doing it in obedience to who? God. God is Lord over all, and we should be completely submissive to our Master. And such was Epaphras, a man under divine mastery. And Epaphras, Paul says, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. I love that statement. Even when Epaphras wasn't with the Colossians, he was laboring for them. How? How? There is prayer. There is prayers. Even if you can't preach, you can pray. If you can't even get up and walk, you can pray. Right? God doesn't just employ preachers in the ministry and in his service, but all people. And one way all of us can serve is through prayer. Through prayer. And what do we pray for? What do the Paphors pray for? Verse 12. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, that you may stand perfect. Teleos fully grown, complete, mature. He prayed for the maturation of the people of God, that they would be mature and would confidently know and do the will of God. That was Epaphras' prayer. What a prayer. He had the same purpose in the ministry that Paul had. Remember back in chapter 1? Paul says, "...we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete, teleos, mature, in Christ. That's what Epaphras wanted. That's what Paul wanted. That's what you and I should want. God's people to be mature. God's people to know and do the will of God. When's the last time we prayed that way? That's how we should pray. Pray for the maturity of God's people. And notice that he labored. He prayed earnestly. The word agonizemai, where we get the word agonize. He worked hard in prayer. His prayers were laborious. He agonized to the point of exhaustion. Is that our prayer life? Or is it more like, Hey, Lord, thanks for the toast. Have a good morning. Are we pouring out our hearts to God and pleading with Him to do these things? Sanctify Your people. Paphris was a man who prayed. Then in verse 13, Paul kind of adds his own testimony. He says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea in Hierapolis. What a commendation for the great apostle. He has a deep concern for you, a great struggle. Epaphras loved these believers in the Lycus Valley. And that love expressed itself in intense prayer. And in the same way, shouldn't we love those to whom we minister? And with whom we minister, shouldn't we care about them? And that love should display itself in a real agonizing prayer on their behalf that God might bring them a maturation in Christ. So Epaphras was a man who prayed, a man who labored, a man worthy of our emulation. Okay, two more men here. Two more. We'll look at these quickly. Number five, Luke. Luke. Look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greeting. Who is Luke? He's mentioned three times in the New Testament here and in two other places. Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 4.11. According to Philemon, he's one of Paul's fellow workers. According to this verse here in Colossians, he was with Paul during his first imprisonment. And in 2 Timothy 4:11 during Paul's second imprisonment, he writes this. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Luke was faithful, wasn't he? He was there to the end. There to the end. So Luke was with Paul and both in prison. And who is he? He's a beloved physician. It means a doctor. He was a doctor loved by Paul. A doctor that was dear to Paul's heart. And again, according to church tradition, Luke is the one who wrote the gospel that bears his name. The gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And that makes sense because if you read the book of Acts, you'll find many of what we call the we statements. The we statements. Statements that indicate that the author was with Paul at a certain time. For example, in Acts 28 verse 14 we read this. And thus we came to Rome. We came to Rome. So whoever wrote the book of Acts made it to Rome with Paul. And the author was none other than Luke, his beloved physician, his personal doctor. Now what do we learn from Luke then? What is there to learn from a beloved physician? Of course we know he's faithful like all the companions are. Yeah, just another little thing with Luke is that um, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are both addressed to the same person. That's right, to the Theophilus. Good point. So, whoever wrote Luke had to write Acts because they're addressed to the same guy. Good job with it. Good reading the Bible. Praise the Lord. So, Luke wrote the two volume account of Luke and Acts. And so, what do we learn from Luke? He's obviously faithful. We can ascertain that. But more specifically, he was a man who used his natural talents to serve the Lord. Again, Luke wasn't a preacher, was he? He was a doctor. How come a doctor. I mean, you ever thought that? I'm just going to my boring old job and it's not even having any eternal impact. All I do is deliver groceries or weld or I'm a doctor. But Luke was a man who knew how to use his talents to serve God. Perhaps he was the one helping Paul with his health conditions. Paul seemed to later in his life have several conditions, maybe with his eyes and other things, and Luke was there. Luke was a man who used his gifts to serve the Lord. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. You're not, we're not all called to be preachers. are not all called to be pastors and shepherds and deacons. Some of us are called to just serve. Some of us are called to knit together masks and put a gospel track in it to a friend. Some of us are called to help paint a neighbor's house so that we might share the gospel effectively with. So whatever your gifts are, whether they're serving gifts or musical talents, we're thankful for those with musical talents, by the way. Whatever your talents are, use them to serve the Lord. And Christ will use you in His service. So such was Luke, a man who used his talents to serve Christ. But finally, one more man here. One more. Remember, I told you that this text shows us what both faithful and unfaithful companions look like. So far, we're five for five. They're all, they're all looking good. But now here's the unfaithful one. We always have that one, don't we? We always have that one which just gives us problems. Demas was that guy. Look at verse 14. Three words at the very end. And also Demas. Also Demas. Paul doesn't say much about him. Also... Demas. Demas was also sitting Greek, And we learn about Demas from three places in the New Testament. Three places. The first two references to him are positive. Okay, Here in Colossians we learn he's staying with Paul and he's one of his companions. In Philemon 24, he's mentioned among Paul's fellow workers for the kingdom. But then the last reference we see of him is very bad. Things go south. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Again, this is Paul's final letter, the end of his life. He wrote this letter just a few years after he wrote Colossians. And look what we read there about Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10 Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What a sober ending for Demas. A man who seemed to be one of Paul's faithful companions deserted him having loved the present world. Like Judas, he was a deserter, a defector, an apostate, one who seemingly defected from the faith out of a love for the world. It's been rightly noted that every person who's faithful in the ministry will have that defector. Jesus had his Judas, right? Paul had his Demas, and all of us can probably recount people that walked with the Lord at one point that are no longer walking with Him, that have defected. What a sad ending. Demas... Was a man to defect What do we know about those who love the world? 1 John 2.15 If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if you love the world, you do not love God. And if you do not love God, according to 1 Corinthians 16, you're a curse. Anathema. Damn. If you love the world, you do not love God. You can't have both. You can't straddle the fence. The devil owns the fence. You either love God or you hate Him and love the world. There is no in-between. Examine Yourself today, friends. What do we love? Do we love the world? Do we love the things of the world? Do we look like the world? We want the world and a little Jesus on top like a cherry on our ice cream? Or is Jesus everything? To the wind with the world. I'll take Christ. Can you say that? Christ is everything. Christ. What do we know about those who defect from the faith? First John 2.19 They went out from us because they were not of us. That's why. They were not believers at all. They left because they were never saved. Those who really are believers love Christ, not the world, and they stand firm in their faith because they're held by the sovereign grace of God. But such was not the case for Demas. He was not the real deal. Perhaps not a true believer at all. A man who defected. Did Demas ever repent? Perhaps he did. We don't know, only the Lord really knows. But what we do know is anyone who permanently defects from the faith does so to their own destruction, to their own condemnation. And Demas then would be an example to avoid. He's not the kind of companion you want to be. And he's not the kind of companion you want by your side because at any moment he's liable to depart and desert you for the world. Demas was a defector. What a sad ending. Brothers and sisters, may it never be said of us at the end of our lives that they started well, they went to church, they served the Lord, only to desert the Lord and His people out of a love for the world. May we never leave our first love for the world. May we never be so dazzled by the world that we love it more than we love the Christ who gave Himself for us. May we hold fast to Christ. Peter says, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In fact, if you have the right perspective, you can say that. If you have the wrong perspective and you're living for temporal fulfillment and pleasure, you can say, oh, I've got plenty of places to go. I can go and indulge in many forms of sin in the world, but the believer knows those things are foolish. It's a squandering away of our eternity. We want eternal pleasure and an eternal Savior who can eternally satisfy our hearts. And for the believer, that's Christ. Hold fast, Christ. So this morning we've met six more of Paul's companions, six more. Aristarchus, a man who suffered for the gospel. Mark, a man who was restored. Jesus, Justice, a man with a big name to live up to. Epaphras, a man who prayed. Luke, a man who used his talents to serve the Lord. And Demas, a man who defected from the faith. So what do we do? What are the lessons here for us? What do we do in response? Like Aristarchus, brothers and sisters, suffer for the gospel. Like Mark, realize that your past failures do not preclude you from being used by the Lord today. Like Jesus, justice, seek to live up to the name of Christ, to be like the Savior. Like Epaphras, labor and pray for the people of God and love those to whom you minister. Like Luke, use your gifts and your talents to serve God in His kingdom. And unlike demons, hold fast to Christ. Do not defect from the faith, knowing that those who really belong to Christ are upheld by Him. In a word, may we seek to emulate these faithful men minus one in hopes that the Lord would use us for His kingdom and His glory. That's pray. Right. Father, we're thankful that even in a seemingly mundane passage like this, So many details that just seem so irrelevant to our lives and seem so out of place for us. Seem to have no place in the study of the Christian life, but yet we see so many practical principles here, so many men who have so much to teach us. Or may we learn well from the men who have gone before us. It's often been said, history, if it's not learned, we're doomed to repeat it. We know there are men who profess faith only to defect from that faith. But then there are men who have had falling outs only to be restored by God and be used by Him for Your glory. I pray that that would be the kind of companion we would be. That You would use us in that way. All of us here at Christ as King. That You would use us to be faithful servants of Christ and His church. And that we would be employed in the ministry of the Lord for the glory of Your name. That's our hope and that's our prayer. May You bring it to fruition. For the name of our Savior. Amen.